Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. My guest today is Matt Singer. He's the author of Opposable Thumbs, which is a sort of biography of the careers of Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, who hosted the show Siskel and Ebert, which was like a hybrid movie review talk show. The show changed TV. There had never been anything like it. Simple as the setup was, simple as the concept was, critics and filmmakers, actors, people from all over the industry are still constantly citing Siskel and Ebert, or its successor version, Ebert and Roper, for changing who they are, for turning them on to the craft of filmmaking and, and teaching them how to look at it differently, how to see nuance and craft and artistry. But in the 25 years since Gene Siskel's death, and then the, I think, 10 years exactly since uh, Roger Ebert's death, it's been Roger Ebert who enjoys the most name recognition, the most call-outs, the most general affection. And part of the reason for that is just that he lived about a decade or, what, 13 years longer than Gene Siskel. He pioneered the second iteration of that talk show with his colleague Richard Roper, continued to write his massively syndicated column. So for one thing, he leaves behind a considerably larger body of work than Gene Siskel ever had an opportunity to write. But a big part of it, what I think is the most striking component when you compare their two biographies, is that while both men died of cancer, Roger Ebert confronted his illness publicly. Gene Siskel, on the other hand, kept his illness a secret, or at least the severity of the illness, from pretty much everybody in his life, including Ebert. Gene Siskel died about two weeks after taking his final sick leave and assuring everyone involved in the production that he would be back for the new season. Roger Ebert, on the other hand, was pretty forthcoming about all of his ailments, especially in the last decade. Roger Ebert lived long enough to enjoy the benefits of blogging. That's how he was able to go on writing several movie reviews a week, even after the cancer surgery in 2006 that removed his jaw and ended his career as a TV host. Gene Siskel's name following his death in 1999 has never quite enjoyed the spotlight again. There weren't as many retrospectives after his death as there would later be for Roger Ebert, he never had enough time to write a memoir, as Roger Ebert did, and consequently, there was no documentary about his life after he died, as there was for Roger Ebert. Matt Singer's new book, Opposable Thumbs, pulls a lot of weight toward resurrecting and fortifying Gene Siskel's legacy, and you wouldn't think that the weight has to be pulled so far as it does. Like, he was, after all, one half of maybe the most influential critical outfit of the past hundred years. And so you would think that his name would come up more often than it does, that there would be like paperbacks aplenty of Gene Siskel's collected reviews. It's like if everybody remembered Lou Costello for having the good lines, but completely ignored the existence of Abbott for having set those lines up. Incidentally, one of my greatest joys during the pandemic days, like the, the peak quarantine days, was I would say to my Alexa device, play the Abbott and Costello radio show. And the version that the device presents is really the whole package. It's got the jingles, it's got the very long commercial interruptions. You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. In a repeated national survey, doctors in all branches of medicine, doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? Once again, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. 
Why not change to camels for the next 30 days and see what a difference it makes in your smoking enjoyment. See how camels agree with your throat. See how mild and good tasting a cigarette can be. My favorite line, the one that stands out in my head, is this exchange. They're talking about how Lou Costello is getting so good at baseball, he's gonna he's gonna try out for the Yankees. And Abbott is telling him, oh man, that's gonna be big bucks. You're gonna draw a fat salary. You drawing a fat salary these days? Nah, I don't draw a fat salary, but I can sketch a skinny tomato. For the most part, when when movie critics or filmmakers talk talk about the influence of Siskel and Ebert, which they will do on a dime. What they end up citing as their major inspiration is either Roger Ebert, the man himself, or Siskel and Ebert, referring more to the show itself than to the contributions of Gene Siskel. And not to denigrate like their individuality, the ways in which they were distinct, but these two dudes, when they were on screen, they, f they formed a single entity. They just complemented each other so perfectly. They dressed pretty much the same, with sweater vests and suit coats and slacks. They, they wore the same things, but to radically different effect. Like, you got the sense that Gene Siskel dressed that way because it lent him an air of refinement, like an academician. Whereas Roger Ebert, I know this is like fanciful, but it was just so easy to imagine Roger Ebert getting out of bed wearing that outfit. Gene Siskel was cerebral. Roger Ebert was more heartfelt. Gene Siskel critiqued movies on the basis of their achievements, how they stacked up against the greatest ever versions of what they were trying to be. Whereas Roger Ebert was more inclined to critique a movie on the basis of whether he enjoyed it, whether it succeeded at being whatever it was trying to be, however modest those aspirations might have been. And naturally, from that example alone, you can probably see why Ebert, for most people, was the more relatable of the pair. But after reading Matt Singer's book, I've got a new appreciation for Siskel's intelligence, for his passion, his integrity, and both of these guys, both Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert alike, what you can say about them that you can't say about almost anyone else in any other profession is that they were constantly, crushingly aware of their integrity. And the reason they were able to model such integrity is because they saw a mirrored version of that integrity, sitting across from themselves in the studio every time they filmed. They held each other up, they held each other accountable, and they improved one another. And they improved their medium. Opposable Thumbs is a delightful book. You might, like me, kind of drag your feet through the opening chapter which runs through, not the introduction, but the opening chapter runs through Roger Ebert's early career. And the thing is, if you're reading this book, you're probably a cinephile, so you probably already know the broad strokes of that career. But that chapter needs to be where it is, because chapter two provides a similar kind of retrospective into the early career of Gene Siskel. But that chapter, chapter two, is not a typical biographical flashback. Instead, it paints a portrait of the young Gene Siskel. It analyzes the young Gene Siskel. Of all things that could have been predicated upon, it portrays and then analyzes him on the basis of his early career obsession with the movie Saturday Night Fever, which he later told the director he probably saw upwards of 17 times in theaters. It was a delight to speak with Matt Singer through Zoom. I'm very grateful that he gave me the time, and I'm mindful, by the way, of how digressive our conversation is. Keep in mind that I was feeling a little guilty to have discovered this book now, in February, when it came out back in October, which means that he has been doing publicity for about four months. I watched a lot of those interviews, I read a lot of the reviews, and I didn't want to drag him back over the same talking points. But if you want to hear him tell more stories, 
from the trenches of Siskel and Ebert. You can find many of those interviews and they're fantastic on YouTube. And with that, here it is. My interview with the film critic, the journalist, the Siskel and Ebert biographer, Matt Singer. I picked this book up for one thing because I watched um, not so much Siskel and Ebert as Ebert and Roper. Uh, when I was growing up, I was born in 91, so I came to it, I guess, a little late in the run. I, I'm noticing how much attention this has gotten, the book has gotten in all the different places that you've appeared and having to do it face first. I don't know if this is somewhat new to your career. Obviously, you've been out and about conducting interviews and stuff, so that part is not new. But as you've been confronting cameras and the lights and everything, has it given you retroactively a different perception? perspective on what uh, Siskel and Ebert were doing. It seems like a poetic irony that now this book in which you ruminate on the influence of these dudes who are doing what you're doing in front of a camera suddenly puts you in front of a camera. Well, like I I did, I mentioned, I, I did work on camera for, like I said, about oh, the five IFC, years. I'm sorry. I right. see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I never had any training in that. I was just a very a lucky kind of break in my career that I wound up doing that. I'm not the kind of person, I mean, if you watched or listened to these other interviews, like I'm not the sort of person, uh, and I know some of them in my career and they can, they're lovely people, but who are like, I don't want to be, uh, you know, I'm a film critic. I sit in my room and I write about movies and no one talked to me. You know, I want to be alone with my thoughts. I, I love doing all of that uh, stuff. It's fun. I like, I don't mind being on camera. I don't mind being in front of people. Back when I was watching Siskel and Ebert as a kid, I I wasn't writing. I didn't have grand designs on being a film critic. Like my fun, my hobby at the time was like being on stage. Like I would do uh, high school plays and middle school plays even for that matter. Like that was my fun thing to do. So yeah, I, I um, the the interview part, um, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I, um, I was pleasantly surprised how many people wanted to talk to me. I think that, it, um, the way it reflects on them is one, the, clearly they had a lot of influence, um, which is good. Cause I wrote a whole book about it and otherwise I might've been in real trouble. Um, and so there were a lot of people who I spoke to who, they didn't care about me. They cared about Siskel and Ebert. And they they um, had a similar story to mine where they grew up, you know, they're roughly my age. So I was born in 1980. So I'm about 10 years older. And people my age, a little bit older than me, they, you know, when I would start doing an interview with them, they'd say, oh, I grew up in Minnesota. I grew up in, uh, in uh, North Dakota. I was from Montana. I, I talked to people from all these places. I've, I've probably never spoken to anyone from these places in my life. And and I, I grew up watching. This was my show growing up. I loved Siskel and Ebert. Uh, I watched it every week with my dad. Or I watched it every week and I would write down the movies. And then I would go to the blockbuster and I would try to see as many of the movies as I could. Um, and so it, it you know... Uh, when I was watching the show as a kid, uh, I felt <laughs> totally alone in that. Like it was this secret thing almost, you know, I loved the show. I didn't spread that around too much. Nobody at school knew that I was staying up on weekends to watch Siskel and Ebert. Uh, it was not the cool thing to do as a 13 year old dork from New Jersey. But what I found, not so much writing the book, but then talking about the book was that there are so it's like I was part of this 
uh, community that I had no idea I was a part of, really, because there were these fans all over the country growing up at the same age as me um, who loved it. It was just that we didn't have like an Internet at the time to connect us. You know, this is like the earliest days of like AOL or something, you know, there this was it was uh, a different world. And so I think that that was what the the interviews really made me me think about. And yeah, perhaps the fact that these guys had, um, you know, these guys did have a big influence and they were big, you know, movie and TV people and media media people. And the, and so media people were very interested in thinking about that. I felt I felt that a lot is that people want to just kind of reckon with maybe I reminded them of this. <laughs> this world that used to exist with Siskel and Ebert in it. And they were such a huge part of the movie landscape, the TV landscape, the newspaper business, and they're gone and all those things have changed. And so I think maybe it offered people an interesting uh, chance to reflect on all of that as well. Yeah. As I was reading the book, um, I read it in Kindle and as I was making notes in the little notebook that they provide, um, to sort of map some questions, I, I would tag them like the first word in all caps. And the one that thematically kept coming up is generational, 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 because there's so many elements that you chronicle about these guys' careers that seems unrecreatable. Um, just so much creatures of their era, which isn't to say that, you know, you would find it unrelatable or offensive if you watched clips on YouTube. I knew that cinephiles would be all over this book, but I was surprised when I initially Googled this and saw it doing the rounds on like the major morning shows. Uh, what was what was your vibe from from that experience? And also of the questions you have found yourself being asked by people who have read the book or they're just interested in the topic. Has that broader survey of inquiry influenced your perception of what these guys contributed? I mean, certainly I, it, it did give me a uh, perspective because, you know, what I like I was saying, like I. I was hoping people would want to talk to me and I would, uh, you know, I, and I was, you know, expecting to talk about people who said, oh, yeah, I remember these guys. But I, I was surprised how many people I spoke to who, like I said, were very similar. They had like a Siskel and Ebert origin story. Like, you know, I spoke to film critics who, uh, you know, they said the same thing. Like, I love this show. And this was the show that made me want to be a film critic. And I made me want to be a reporter, made me want to be on television, made me want to work in the media, all these sorts of things. You know, when I got older, I did meet people who were kind of like that. In college, I had some friends. We used to read Ebert's reviews, to, like uh, maybe not quite together, but we would almost like regularly read on Fridays. This is now, now the internet exists. Now Roger right. Ebert's reviews are getting published on there. Sadly, Gene has passed away, but Roger, this is like the late 90s, early 2000s. But Roger's reviews are published every week on, I think it was suntimes.com slash Ebert site I haven't visited in many, many years, but I could rattle off the address because I went so many times. And every Friday, his new reviews would come out and me and a, like two other guys who love this stuff, we would, you know, as soon as we got home from class on Friday mornings, we would, they would usually be up and we would read them. And then we would, pro we would like, it, we would eventually wander into each other's rooms. We lived on the same floor of the dorm. And then like, what did you think of that one? Oh man, that was a great review. I'm surprised he didn't like this one. All that sort of stuff. So, you know, I I, I had experienced a little of of, you know, what sort of what impact these guys could have. But yeah, it was really um 
It was very, it was surprising, honestly. I was surprised that there were people out there who had such similar stories to mine in terms of really how how much it affected them. Because, I mean, it's a show about two guys sitting in a movie theater talking about movies. It's not exact, you know, it's not the sort of thing uh, that I uh, inspire, you know, when people talk about the TV show that changed my life or the movie that changed my life. It's, they, you, they, I don't know. They, it doesn't, this doesn't seem to fit that bill for a lot of people. I guess for a guy who grew up to be a movie critic, it makes sense, but uh, it is sort of a, an unusual choice uh, otherwise. I'm trying to think of what else you asked. I guess in terms of, uh, yeah, you said well, I used the, the word generation, people... generational a lot in the book. Oh, no, no. That was m my annotations as I was thinking, whenever I would come across a passage that triggered, you know, a question I wanted to ask, just so I could group them categorically, I, I would put, you know, integrity was one of them because that was clearly that's a recurring factor in why people were so drawn to them as they cultivated this enormous sense of critical integrity and then the another this sort of number one thing that kept popping to mind is like generational of just you would describe something about their career or about their approach that um it just prompted me to think yeah. like this cannot this is a this is something of a different time and although i do want to stay on them um because you're talking about the period in which you were in college Siskel and Ebert presented the image of a film critic as a sort of refined person, someone, you know, with integrity who could communicate in an everyday fashion. How when Kevin Smith's image of the sort of vulgar, nerdy banter kind of cinephilia came on the scene, how did you guys take to that? I guess it was a little before you were that age, right? You were in middle school, maybe when that came on the scene? Um, I, yeah, well, right. So, yeah, I mean, what's Clerks is 94 or so, uh, something yeah. like that. The first one of those movies that I saw was was Chasing Amy. That would have been 97, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually like spending a summer away from I was a it was I think it was the summer before my senior year of high school. And I saw that movie. I was like spending like a summer brief uh, like a couple of weeks in like Boston or something. It was some kind of like pre-college thing for uh, high school kids. And I was supposed to be like studying or doing things. And all I wanted to do was go to the movies because there was cool movie theaters in Boston. And I went and saw Chasing Amy uh, because I had see heard about it on Siskel and Ebert. Um, that was the only reason I even knew it existed. And um, it kind of blew my mind because uh, it was um, a, a movie. It was set in basically my hometown. It, was, it, it takes place about 20 minutes. Chasing Amy, it takes place about 20 minutes from where I grew up. And the characters love comic books, um, which was the thing that I loved actually before I cared about Siskel and Ebert or movies. Uh, that was the main thing that I was obsessed with was comics. Um so I was just excited that someone made a movie that was actually seemed – it was like set in my world. You know, the characters were older. They were uh, far more handsome. Um, they had relationships with women. But other than that, it basically could have been, uh, you know, it could have quasi been about me or at least it felt that way at the time. And then I saw Clerks and Mallrats and, and they're all set in that same part of New Jersey. So I had a very um, – strong reaction to them well i think largely just because of again it was a it was a different time and now the the geek or however you wanted to describe it that it's uh it's a let's say that that type is now over serviced over represented and over serviced by the world of media and at the time it was the opposite i mean sure there were movies some movies there were some cartoons but i mean like like i was saying i joked about not telling people i watched siskel and ebert 
as a kid. You know, I would have rather probably been publicly beaten than tell people that I read comic books as a kid. Like this was a this was a, 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 a re, that was a real um, secret. That was not that was not acceptable. I never brought comic books to school. I never told anyone I liked any of these things. If asked, I would say, oh, no, I, I don't know that or I don't read that or I don't watch that. It was it was I didn't you know, please, please don't um, knock my books out of my hands. Please don't shove me into a locker, that kind of thing. And that was and that's real. That's like literally what I was worried thing would happen because I was bullied and picked on in, in, in uh, middle school, especially in high school. And I didn't need to give them any more ammunition. So, again, this is now a few years later that I'm seeing these movies. and I was like, this guy likes them so much. And doesn't care what people think. He made a movie about them. And um, I was a, a huge Kevin Smith fan for a while. I still enjoy those old movies. I can't say that I'm a huge fan of a lot of the things he's made uh, in the last few years. Kind of, I, I admire the way he's kept himself relevant and reinvented himself in podcasting and all the different things he does. Because, again, he's just a guy from uh, Jersey, not that far from where I grew up. So I still sort of, you know, follow him and I'm always interested in what he's doing. I don't know that I ever made a connection between him and Siskel and Ebert before, but it's an interesting comparison to make. Again, as a kid, I really responded and kind of related to the, the, the people in those movies. I didn't necessarily see myself as those people, but I, they sort of were aspirational in some way, even though now you look back and you go, these people are kind of horrible in some ways. Yeah. None of them have very good jobs, I guess, except for the guys in Chasing Amy seem to be, I guess, making a little bit of money. But, you know, they're slackers and they're working at a... You know, they're working at the video store, something I did end up doing later for a little while, actually, uh, after college. But I mean, these are not exactly, uh, you know, people who, uh, you know, are changing the world or um, wildly successful or happy with their personal lives necessarily. But I, I would say that I definitely looked to them more in that way at that time. And I don't think I ever made any sort of connection to, yeah, Siskel and Ebert. The thing that re I responded to in Siskel and Ebert was, I mean, I didn't necessarily even, I mean, oh, back then I certainly wasn't like, well, I'm going to be a film critic. It, that seemed such an absurd notion. You know, the show was called at the time, it was called Siskel and Ebert. So it wasn't like the film critic roundup where you would go, well, these guys are going to get older someday. I could, I could be on this show. If you're not named Siskel and Ebert, to, you can't be on Siskel and Ebert. That was how I thought of it. So I didn't really have like this grand design there. Not until I got a lot older. I, what I really responded to was just how much they loved movies. And when I started to do things like oh, wow, that's Chasing Amy movie they're talking about sounds interesting. I'm going to go check it out. I was kind of rewarded with a movie that I really loved. And so I would I would, I would, would go see things that they recommended or that just sounded interesting to me. By, the t by that point, it would, it, you know, even if they gave it a mixed review, if it looked good, if it sounded interesting, I might take a chance on it. But yeah, it was more of a, I guess you could say it was more of a tool at that age, you know, that I enjoyed it, but it was also... You know, I sort of always saw them as like my first film professors, even though I never met Gene and didn't meet Roger until many years later and probably never told him that. I don't know. I I don't know if I did or not. I mean, I certainly made he he I made it very clear how much of a fan of his I was. But, yeah, it's an interest. It's an interesting um, it's a very interesting thing to compare just because I was. I was a really big Kevin Smith uh, fan kind of right after the period where I was so most obsessed with Siskel and Ebert. Well, that just shot me in a bunch of different directions. First of all, please, let's put a pin in, in your having met Ebert. Mainly what was coming to mind when I would watch 
old clips of Ebert and Roper, of, of Siskel and Ebert is, um, see, I grew up saying Ebert and Roper. So Siskel and Ebert is that they were fundamentally commentators. And when you watch those clips to see, you see what they were discussing. And so you see what were the really prevalent issues of their time. And also it's fascinating to see what were the objects, what, what were the subjects on which people sought their opinion. And you can see like Pulp Fiction obviously had a galvanic influence and all this conversation about violence and movies and stuff. But I was trying to think of the, what are those issues today? And you made an interesting remark and you made a distinction that, I, that had never occurred to me just now where you said that that geek, that nerd, cultural commentator figure is not only overrepresented, but overserviced. And in your editorial capacity, in what ways have you tried to curtail that? Or is it kind of a beast that's too big to battle? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm maybe I'm part of the problem. I mean, the website that I work for does, I mean, it's sort of the um, one of the main things it covers. I mean, what I just try to do is try to do the sort of um, stuff I would want to read. You know, I don't pretend to not to not be into these things. You know, I I still enjoy comics. I still read comic books. One sitting li literally right next to me right now. I was going to read later today. So I, I when I say that geeks are maybe over over serviced or whatever, that doesn't mean that I don't read uh, you know stuff about these things or watch these movies like I do, and I. I don't enjoy all of these things. And the last year or two, I think a lot of the um, movies have been very disappointing. But I'm sort of this weird creature who, yeah, I mean, like my first love really before movies was comics. When I'm writing about them, I try to write about them from a place of, you know, love and appreciation and but also interest um, and, and thoughtfulness. Um, you know, like I've written a book about Spider-Man. When I write about a Spider-Man movie on Screen Crush, I would hope that what you're getting, you know, isn't, you know, the the stereotype of an angry fan saying this isn't the right way to do a Spider-Man. They ruined Spider-Man. I may not like all, every Spider-Man movie. And in fact, I don't like every Spider-Man movie, but I would hope even when I don't like it, what you're not getting is that what you're getting is, well, here's why this one didn't work. And here's how you can, here's how I compare it to the ones that did work. And here's what they got wrong. And here's what was missing. And a, more of a, of a Siskel and Ebert than a angry, you know, like the comic book guy on the Simpsons, I guess. What had come to mind is sort of the, the toxic sort of over-servicing that I, I thought you might have been referring to is like the the dozen articles a day that say five things Avengers got wrong, uh, five things Infinity War got wrong. That over-servicing of not only the content, but the relegation of the, of the discussion to something more nitpicky and exclusive, something that kind of reaffirms that the fan is in the in club, whereas Siskel yeah. and Ebert were way inclusive. Yeah. They and they certainly were that, and there is uh, certainly in in modern fandom there is a very exclusionary segment, and you can find those people who yes they don't want to share whatever their thing is with, you know whatever person it is uh, you know they're which I've always found not just mean but just silly like again guy growing up as someone who desperately wanted more people to like the things I liked so I wouldn't get picked on for liking them. I've never understood that impulse at all. And yes, uh, perhaps part of that came from growing up watching this show, which absolutely had uh, kind of baked into its core this idea of they were going to encourage you to see these things that they when they really loved a movie, they told you to go see it. And they were really good at making things feel accessible. You know, like I remember watching this 
show. And, you know, sometimes the home video pick of the week would be esoteric stuff. You know, they would be French films. There would be old Japanese films. There would be art house films. And I'm 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. And when I see the movie, I may not fully get it and understand it. But when they would describe it, they would do so in a way that would make me feel, well, I could, that sounds interesting. You know, like they would, they would put it in terms that you felt were approachable. They never made you feel watching it like, well, you've missed out. It's too late for you. They really made you want to see these movies and learn more and watch more and become a more well-rounded um, cinephile. And yeah, I mean, there, there. look, there are places that uh, do that sort of work in geek uh, spaces in these court, uh, spaces now, but there are certainly a lot of uh, people who don't absolutely and um definitely uh approach things from the opposite end and yeah that can be really um disappointing i always feel kind of disappointed when i see that because i do still identify as sort of a big fan of these things um and so when i see people approaching it that way it does kind of bum me out yeah I, i can i can understand how um especially as someone who is churning out this material you're you're reporting on this industry and you don't want to be lumped in with all of that. And it, it brings to mind what I mentioned a moment ago, which is the integrity of these guys. And you recount these episodes about how they, they're they turning down this lucrative opportunity, that lucrative opportunity, whether it's to appear publicly somewhere or in a commercial, because they don't want to give the impression to viewers that they that they are compromised. But again, I was born in 91. So like, where would those accusations have been leveled? at that time, like the letters, pages of the newspaper, because it seems today I would understand being concerned about an immediate audience backlash. We see it so often with people. Oh, my God, you know who came to mind? Harry Knowles. I feel like there's a definite progression there between the phenomenon of Harry Knowles, kind of the opposite, where everyone said, even at the peak of his fame, this man can be bought. This man is so conspicuously dazzled by being flown out to a screening, wined and dined. Okay, yeah, take that where you will. If you want to go in the direction of Ain't It Cool, as maybe the the weird uh, descendant of Siskel and Ebert, or just the general topic of integrity. Yeah, sort of two different uh, things. I mean, in terms of like, who would have criticized them at the time? I mean, they were, I mean, because they were such a big show at the time, they absolutely were the targets of a lot of criticism basically from their peers, from media reporters, from other critics, and they would be written about in newspapers. There were, you know, and I talk about some of that in the book, you know, the stuff with film comment. There's, there was a very, there was a big article in the Los Angeles Times around that same era, sort of like after they, basically what really did it for them was when they went to Disney. The original version of the show was at PBS. The second version was at Tribune, which certainly was a media company, but they didn't make movies. It was a, you know, it was a TV and and newspaper company, essentially. And so that didn't, you know, to some people that that was fine. But then when they went to Disney, well, Disney is making the movies, you know, Dis- it's different divisions of the same company. But there was a lot of people who were like, well, they're going to be compromised now. There's no way around it. And they insisted they wouldn't be. And I think if you look back and watch the shows like I did, I, I, I genuinely do not think they ever changed a word of any review to spare the feelings of anyone at Disney. I mean, there's plenty of examples uh, of them tr- tr- absolutely trashing Disney movies and Disney things that Disney was doing on the show. 
but at the time there were people who really thought that was a, a an issue or would be an issue and they would write about it and stuff and i actually think that it would have been it was harder for that sort of thing then than now i feel like now people sell out all the time the idea of selling out now is not a thing when i was growing up you never sell you don't sell out it was a very like gen x kind of like we don't sell out man you took the money you sold out you know that was like a a, a value which i don't now it's like Oh, you sold out? How much did you make? That's good. Because it's all about, you know, like how many people follow you on social media and how you've monetized it. How much do you get per social media post? And that's presented as a positive uh, attribute, not a negative thing. Uh, this is something I wondered personally, is like if they were alive today, regardless of their age or what they would be, you know, if, if, if they had those sort of offers now, would they do them? And would anyone care? I don't know, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, in terms of Harry Knowles, you know, he is sort of a very complicated figure, I think. I mean, obviously, the stuff that came out about him later, notwithstanding, even at the time, he was a, a very complicated figure um, and a very influential figure. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the amount of people in my, you know, like I, w I would be interested to know the amount of people in my business who, you know, like I am here because of Siskel and Ebert. And there's lots of people like that. But I would wager there's a lot of people and perhaps more people now as we, as, as the years go by who are here because of Ain't It Cool News and that website, the thing that they would check religiously instead of suntimes.com slash Ebert. You know, I, I know of a couple of people like that, and I'm guessing there's a lot more. Now, maybe now as time has gone on, maybe it will be less because I think the site still exists, but it's certainly not what it what it was at that time. You know, I don't know that gene ever read or was aware of harry knowles i'm not sure how big harry was by the time he passed away but i i mean but roger was a harry knowles fan to some extent he had him as a guest on before it was ebert and roper oh that's right they had that's right. they had guest hosts on uh, siskel and ebert or then it became roger ebert in the movies for a year before it became ebert and roper and he had harry as a guest and i believe he had harry on as a guest more than once he liked him enough to bring him back which was not something he did for every person that was on um, the show. You know, some people would be on it over and over, obviously, but there were people who would show up and if it didn't go great, they wouldn't have them back. Or if, if they didn't get along with Roger or Roger didn't particularly, you know, respond to them, thanks for coming. And that, that was it. He did, I'm pretty sure he did at least two times and he may have been on more than that. I don't know off the top of my head. And I think what it was, was, you know, this figure of the geek, quote unquote, you know, Roger really kind of was that growing up, even though that figure really hadn't kind of coalesced as a thing in our minds. I don't know if you had asked him if he would self-identify as a geek, but the stuff that he loved as a kid, some of the stuff he loved as a kid was all these sorts of things. You know, he grew up reading science fiction and reading science fiction fanzines, which were kind of ain't it cool news before the Internet existed. You know, they were fans writing their own reviews, speculating. They would write their own sort of like amateur and i don't mean that insultingly but like amateur criticism they would make their own magazines and news you know and and like print them uh however way they could do it they would mail them they would send them to their friends and readers send them back and forth roger read some of these fanzines he started his own fanzine and years later when he looked back on it he wrote this article once that i found somewhere i don't even know where i found it he wrote about fanzines and their influence on him. And he said that this was kind of one of the early sort of germs of me being a critical person because 
that's what those magazines were. They were critical. You would read things, you would write about them, you would comment, you would speculate, ruminate. So I think he kind of saw Harry, uh, whatever we think of him, I think he kind of recognized that same spirit in him and he admired that. And the fact that he kind of did it all like on his own, whatever else you want to say about him being uh, bought-able, he sold out or he could be easily bought by the studios. That he was a kind of a, you know, like he was a an entrepreneur of the early internet in a way. And he launched this whole thing himself and he did it out of, for better or worse, he did it out of his like love and passion for movies. But I feel like he's probably a figure in maybe that era of internet movie culture. That might deserve its own book, really. Who knows? Maybe someday someone will do that. I, I think it's 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 soon on the horizon. He crossed my mind a while ago, um, and I checked on the website, and uh, the first line on their about page is, ever since the departure of Harry Knowles, uh, they're really trying to create a distance. Yeah, so early in the book, um, it, really, this is, I think, the only instance where you cite something that you couldn't find, the, the figures of what they were earning in their first network. Incidentally, I did, I went to Inflation Calculator, and I saw, like you said, they were starting out at Disney earning a million dollars a year. And I saw that in 2023 dollars, that's 2.7 million. You mentioned you could not find out what they were earning in the first network. Uh, were there other things that seem lost to time that frustrated you? The, I would say the only thing that was really lost to time that frustrated me other than that, that was one thing, certainly. But, like, just some of the stuff, like the epi episodes from the early show, you know, like the early history of the show. Certainly we have, like, the pilot. We have some other early episodes. I think that, and it's not a Siskel and Ebert thing. It's more of a television at the time thing. Like, they didn't think anyone was going to care. And they didn't preserve these things. You know, there's, aren't there like, doc, I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan, but aren't there Doctor Who episodes that just don't exist anymore? Um, that they, no, because someone taped over them, like the BBC to save a few dollars or pounds, I suppose, they, um, they took, they, they just basically recycled the, like, we can reuse these videotapes, but they have Doctor Who on them. Eh, who cares? Just reuse the tapes. And I think that I'm pretty sure that's correct. And the, there are episodes of Doctor Who that are just now lost. And that's kind of like, I, I don't have that exact story from WTTW, but I presume that's basically why we don't, like, there isn't an, you know, an, a central archive. There isn't a complete archive of the show because, like, some of the early episodes and stuff are just kind of like, lost and so you can watch the early days of the show but it's incomplete and so i really wanted to see every single episode of the show and uh there are years where i was able to do that later years where i, I saw every single episode there online and everything but there were a few uh, that weren't but really a lot of it it was kind of clustered in the early years of the show where it is a little uh murky what was frustrating about it is you know there's they are so kind of <laughs> frankly bad in the in the pilot and the early episodes they're not good and it i was really interested to watch them evolve over time and to i wanted to be able to say here's where they get better you know if you watch here you really see it and it's not that doable i mean obviously you can sort of say it's great you can watch and they're oh yeah they're better this week and they're better this week but the problem is there's you know, there might be a month without an episode in between or two months without an episode in between. You don't get the full sense of the gradual evolution. And so that was something that kind of bummed me out when I was doing it was I was hopeful I could have done that. And I tried, you know, talking to WTTW and do you have the episodes? Will you let me come and watch them? Or can, do you have every like they were just they were not uh, 
super forthcoming with they just like i don't know dude you're kind of on your own if they have the episode somewhere they don't have them handy or they weren't ready to share them with me so it's sort of like what what's out there is what's out there well the other aspect of research that i was curious about is although as you mentioned you've had experience in interviewing people i imagine that's mostly in a promotional capacity or you know analyzing a work but here i imagine major sources of information were interviews with um Chaz Ebert and Marlene, is it Eiglitzen or Eaglitzen? I think it's Eaglitzen. Okay. And I was thinking that the, you spoke with a lot of people who were very close to these guys and they did not die that long ago. And I'm sure for a lot of these people, the loss is somewhat fresh. And um, what was that like, especially speaking with the widows? Was it new to you? Were there things that took you by surprise? Were you surprisingly comfortable with it? I was certainly, un I was uncomfortable with it for sure, because yeah, it's, it's, it's a sensitive subject. I, I, it seems like, I mean, it's not the kind of thing you ever get over, but I mean, I guess I had the benefit of, we weren't, you know, wasn't like, Gene passed away last week or Roger passed away last month or something. I mean, as hard as it is to believe, it's 25 years actually since Gene passed away. So it's 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 been a long time. It's been a long time. And even Roger now, it's I think more than 10 years. I guess that is the one benefit is that it's not super that was not super fresh that I was asking these things. But yeah, it's a tough, it's very tough to uh to talk about. And uh just my by my nature, you know, like I like to talk about movies because then <laughs> so you so i don't have to talk about death and disease and think about these things in my life so that was certainly not my favorite part of the research of doing interviews writing but it's a fact of you know it's a fact of life and it's a fact of this certainly it's a big fact of this story so um you know i tried to try to deal with it as best as i as i could and write about it as 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 much as i could and I guess the one when you said like what was surprising, the thing that the, the number one surprise in that regard was, you know, I talked I did talk to Chaz um, about hers and Roger's reaction to Jean's death. And I guess maybe she has said this elsewhere and and, and he had written it also. Roger had, uh, you know, in, in pieces that he wrote after Jean's death. But like she said, they really did not know that he was within, you know, like the last time they saw him was at the final taping of the show that he that Gene Siskel was a part of, which is like either very, I think it's the last week of January of 1999. And then he passes away in February of 99. And what they told what 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 Gene and Marlene and they told everyone was he was taking another a break um, to to basically to just he needed to rest and recover, recuperate um, from they never really specified exactly what was going on and what his illness was at the time. But he was going to re recover, recuperate. He would be back at the start of the next season. So in like the following September or August, essentially. And Chaz said, you know, they thought that was a little odd, perhaps, but they believed that. They thought that that was the truth. And so they did not know when they did the last episode together that that this would be like, the last time that they would ever see Gene alive, much less that it was the last episode. And she said they didn't, they they still had no idea until basically like days before he passed away, they were finally told how ill he was. And it was like, if you want to see him before he passes away, you better do it quickly. And they they made plans to do it. Um, but by the time they, they, they were going to see him, he had passed away already. And so it was like that last minute. I that that I mean the, the the degree to which that that was that was even 
kept for them, I guess was still surprising to me, even if I had sort of sort of known. I certainly knew how private uh, Gene was and, and didn't want to talk about that. I I guess I was still sort of shocked by the the extent uh, to which. But I mean, he was they were he, he was a very private person. I don't I don't necessarily judge him or begrudge him for it. I'm just I am just sort of surprised by it, I guess. I was too, and it, it's it's beautifully captured in that Life Itself documentary, where they clearly try to capture how abrupt the news was by just slapping the viewer in the face with that news halfway into the documentary. But reading your version, where these guys develop like characters in a novel, part of me was thinking like, Jesus, that would have been awkward for Roger, who is clear neither of these men are very forthcoming with their feelings. For Roger to have had to tiptoe around that, would he have been pulling punches? Would he have been too hesitant about throwing out a barbed remark during the show. I'm actually reluctant to look up on YouTube the episodes that you cite in the book where apparently Gene's limitations become visibly conspicuous. Okay, on that note, I've kept you longer than we planned. I appreciate you hanging out for a little bit. (laughs) 